This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but at Thinking Out Loud, we believe the gospel speaks to every issue, past, present, and future. And we want this to be your place to process truth. So what does it mean to live in the light of the gospel's eternal truth rather than in the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, co-founders of Thinking Out Loud, a ministry that wants to move apologetics out of the ivory tower and into your living room. Our hope at Thinking Out Loud is to see ordinary Christians advance the credibility of Christ. One way to do that is to respond to the day's news with genuine peace and resilience. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Cameron, I thought we should pick up and do another lap on our climate change conversation. We, I think in some ways I felt a bit vague. We were kind of laying some of the foundational parameters of some of that thinking. But I think it's an important enough topic, and it certainly shows up in the news often enough, that we should push into it a little bit more. And to do that, I thought I would lead off with some a little bit more on the science side of some facts and some context of things that might be helpful for those of us who are thinking about this just to, to keep in consideration. And I want to give you some quotes from a book that's rather controversial, but I think is helpful. Um, and it's called Unsettled, What Client Simon what client science tells us, why it doesn't, and why it matters. And this is by uh, Stephen Coonan. And Stephen Coonan was, let me make sure I get his title right. He was um, the Undersecretary for Science in the Department of Energy under President Obama. And so doesn't really come out as a, you know, a right winger here on this. And, and he accepts uh, a lot of, uh, most of, I think all of everything that's mm-hmm. being said in the actual science around this topic but wrote this book as like, let's just keep in perspective what the science actually says versus the way that it's articulated to the public. And if you're somebody who's kind of, I mean, you can look online and see the critiques of him and his background. He has worked for oil corporations and companies in the past and that sort of thing. Um, But if you're somebody who's pretty alarmed uh, or you feel yourself sensing stress about it, this might be a helpful book just to kind of balance out a little bit um, some of the paranoia that comes through. And I thought maybe it'd be helpful for me just to read a couple things that I think readers might find inter- or listeners might find interesting here. And so here, for example, are a couple quotes from the IPCC's uh, AR5 WIG report. So that's the International Panel on Climate Change is sort of seen as the gold standard. You hear that referred to a lot. Um, another good one that I found helpful is just to go to epa.gov and you can read through the, their global uh, or national greenhouse gas emissions. All of this stuff is is online. You can go and, and check it out. But here's here's some quotes from the IPCC's models and their forecasting for the future. So this is like not disputed. This is right straight out of those papers. So um, when they look at the trends in the models, they have, quote, low confidence regarding the sign or trend in the magnitude and or frequency of floods on a global scale. So this is man-made co- climate change causing floods on a global scale, there's like, ah, the link isn't really tight there. Low confidence in a global scale observed trend in drought or dryness. So lack of rainfall since the middle of the 20th century. How many times have we heard 
uh, about a drought or lack of rainfall linked to man-made climate change. Low confidence in trends in small-scale severe weather phenomena such as hail and thunderstorms. And then the confidence in large-scale changes in the intensity or extreme extratropical cyclones or storms since 1900 is low. And so it's just interesting that you would have from the IPCC report itself these things of like, look, droughts, floods, severe weather events, the intensity of storms, we don't have the science to model that connection. And so there's a, a way in which he's really hard on this book of, of media hyping numbers. Um, and the reason I got interested in this, by the way, is I remember I was like probably back in 2015 or 16 or something. Um, the New York Times had a headline saying, you know, hottest year on record um, since last year. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. So I went and looked and it was saying that the global or the temperature in New York City or global temperature was 0.01 degrees Celsius higher. And the margin of error in the study was 0.01 degrees, was plus or minus 0.01 degrees Celsius. And I was like, you're you're making a huge story out of a number that's within the margin of error of the claim that you're making. And so it was, you know, huge headlines everywhere on that. And I just thought, I'm not sure that the numbers are really pointing to that. And so what he says is that a lot of this is playing off of our lack of understanding of how the world uh, really works. So he uses an example of like, you'll maybe see a headline that says, oceans are warming at the same rate as if five Hiroshima bombs were dropped in every second. I mean, that sounds apocalyptic. I mean, that's crazy. And you make a little nuclear reference in there and oh my. Um, and he's like, yeah, that's, that's actually true. Uh, but if you look at it, the ocean's temperatures are rising at 0.07 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. And he's like, a basic refresher would be to remind ourselves that the Earth absorbs sunlight and radiates the equal amount of heat energy equivalent to 2,000 Hiroshima bombs every second. And so some of these things are like, oh, wow, that's like five yeah. bombs being dropped. We're doing like 2,000 a second um, is what the Earth is normally doing. And so some of these things sound like really big numbers, but in comparison to what's normal, it becomes harder to differentiate out like how concerned we should be about that. One other uh, illustration and example that I've found to be kind of helpful is he said, okay, if we look at humans are generating about 1% of the greenhouse gases and all the rest is coming from natural cycles, he said, let's think about that 1% as if it were your diet. So just to make the math easy, let's say that you eat a 2000 calorie diet. Um, which I don't think any most people in the U.S. do, but that's what's on the back of your cereal box. So there you go. So let's say you eat a 2,000-calorie diet, and we say we're going to change your your diet by 1% per year, So that's um, or per day. So that's 20 calories a day, which comes out to like half a cucumber. So he said, you know, if you say, okay, I eat a 2,000-calorie diet, and now I add a half of a cucumber to my diet per day, can you guess my weight a year from now? And the answer to that is theoretically, yes. You could say, given this many calories across this amount of time, this is what it would turn out to be. But he says, practically, you have no idea what your weight will be a year from now if you ate a half a cucumber every day because there are so many other variables that are involved. What's the temperature of the office do you sleep in? What other foods are you eating? Has your exercise changed? Does your metabolism change? So, um, those are helpful images, I think. And again, it's not that he's like not concerned about all of this. 
He's just saying that the apocalyptic nature of how this is breaking down and the way that the science is manipulated um, really is unethical at best and super unhelpful at worst. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that out there as a resource. And I know you can go online and it's, it's a contentious book, but there are things that are straight out of the reports and he gives some helpful context to that I think take a little bit of the uh, shock and awe and terror out of some uh, of some of the news stories that we come across these days. So anyway, wanted to lead off with that as a resource and just some mm -hmm. general categories of an idea of saying, um, he his one his thing is he says orthodonture is always better than extracting teeth if you can help it, and we're we're moving toward policy. It's like, oh, there's a tooth that's out of a line. We got to rip all fossil fuels out of the system. Uh, he's like, no, can we align these things correctly and economize them for efficient and uh, sustainable growth rather than just saying, oh, here's the single cause of all of our problems, and we're going to rip that out and totally monkey with the entire economy and global. <laughs> system. Uh, so anyway, just a couple of thoughts there to say kind of where I'm coming at personally, I don't lose sleep over this at night, uh, because of the science. It's something I'm interested in because I'm interested in the way that the world works. But I think there's a way for us as Christians to say, Hey, we're keeping an eye on this. We're watching. We're fascinated in what the scientists are helpfully telling us about how the world works. And we are also not losing our minds over it. So that's the, that's kind of the position that I sit in as I come to a lot of these conversations. One quick observation, you know, as you give this measured account and you, you know, there's a sort of, there's a sobriety to your tone here and it's notably less interesting. Oh, for sure. You, and I'm we're not, not going to get any yeah, clicks I, on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I'm not saying that at all to, yeah, of course, to, to offend you, Nathan, but I think you've got two sort of observations here real quickly. There, We mentioned in the last episode the translation gap, that gap that exists between scientific research and public perception. So there's that to take into account. And as you go through some of these the, this information here and you read some of what you're finding in this book, that gap makes sense because some of it, you know, it's it's not as interesting. It takes a little bit more time. But then another another factor here, I think, let me see if I can make sense of this with an example. So I was watching a show on, you know, different unexplainable events. This is one of my favorite genres of entertainment, okay? So whether it's <laughs> impo impossible structures, you know, architecture, or unexplained historic events, you know, where expeditions, the whole crew vanishes, that sort of thing. And they were talking about one such expedition. This one happened to be a mountain expedition in a very fri frigid region, region in, in Russia. All sorts of bizarre, unexplained events. All of these, all the people who were on this expedition perished, some in some extremely unpleasant ways. And so people were trying to figure out what, what was going on. And one of the explanations had to do with psychosis that was sort of, that was really conditioned by what was what some of the environmental factors that were around them. But then the other one was that there was some kind of a beast or some sort of a monstrous, you know, presence that was unremarked in the, in the, in this region. But okay, here's, here's where I'm going with this. One person commenting on this says, has, says, look, I know that we all 
we all want to believe in a naturalistic explanation, but the truth is, I think, much worse, much darker, much more fearful. And the problem is we just don't want to believe that. And I sat there and I looked at my wife and I said, no, that's precisely wrong. The problem is we often want to believe the much more scary, <laughs> big, monstrous kind of kind of story because it's just so much more interesting and all of us usually are hardwired rom like romantics a little bit on some of this stuff and just to be an equal opportunity offender here so those who a little are you know a little bit more right of center may be those who downplay some of the the you know the threats in the you know environmentalism category right but there are certainly a set of threats on that side of the political aisle as well that tend to get, I think, sometimes over-exaggerated and blown up into huge, monstrous national trends as well. So it's not like this is just some isolated incident. But but yeah, just to, to go along with those apocalyptic forecasts, I think part of that, that the apocalyptic forecast is is certainly, that's, I mean, we're all, that's a that's a shared kind of response to the only difference is what what we see is a serious existential threat, right? And if you're looking at climate change, yeah, that might describe, you know, there's a certain sensibility that might be inclined to, to really see that in extreme terms. If you're somebody who's a little bit more conservative, you might look at some of the social trends. Mm -hmm. You might look at some of the changing sexual mores, which are serious. But I think there's there's definitely a tendency toward exaggeration there as well. And if you find that offensive, that's just to, to say that, again, we tend to think in apocalyptic terms. That's part of our meaning making. That's part of also just, a, it's just a, it's a basic human well, impulse and tendency. Yeah, and, so I think those are two yeah, factors Yeah, one of the here. things that plays in there is that <laughs> it's, again, contentious, but there is some indications that some part of the world will really benefit if things did warm up. Um, and more of certain type of gases in the atmosphere. I mean, commercial tomato growers pump CO2 into their greenhouses to accelerate. I mean, so I'm not saying like, I'm just saying that there are two sides to all of this conversation and there's some fascinating assumptions that are baked in. The, the primary one being that any change that humans make is bad. And that that's interesting from a theological yeah. perspective too, because it is. And, and, <laughs> I, and I want to, I think I'd, I'd like to lean this conversation in the direction of why is this conversation hard for Christians? Um, because from a Christian yes. perspective, changing your environment, can humans change the environment? Yeah, that's actually a biblical command. <laughs> it's it's part of, right. um, and, and time and time again, you can look at how actually nature flourishes at its best when it's stewarded well by humans, whether it's building topsoil or uh, stewarding forest or species or all sorts of things. So one of one of the things I think we we grate against is this idea that everything that humans touch is bad, or that everything that humans do is bad. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a strange like separating humans out from nature. Uh, yeah, let's let's not fall into that. Yeah, Cameron. Yeah, so I have a question along those lines. Then, so yes, this is this is typically, I think, a topic that those who are in kind of in many in Christian circles struggle with quite a bit. So there is the creation mandate aspect, which is, which is quite, that's, I mean, that's a, this is, this is fairly basic to Christianity, but before we, we get there, Nathan, I would like to hear you talk a little bit about actual culture making 
in the actual, mm. you know, if we actually go back to the, the, the roots of what that word actually means, in a sense, all culture making goes back to tending the garden or stewardship. Yeah, you even see like... And so I'd love to hear you explore that a little bit. <laughs> you, you, yeah, I think even even in cultivating and some of the phrases we have, we have this collective um, harmonious uh, language. And the, this is the challenge. I want to say this. If you're a Christian listening to this and you're a little bit on the eye-rolling side of like, is this really a serious thing? Well, okay, it is for a lot of people. And so at minimum, it's a starting point. But I would suggest to you that your problems with the topic are not theological and that you actually have more to say here than Greta Thunberg does in a helpful way if you're a Christian. This is actually, <laughs> if this is our father's world, we believe in a creator, we should have the most to say on this topic. And so that I'm, that might be a little bit of my frustration of like, why are Christians leaning back from this conversation? You're getting scared off by crazy misuse of science and some wacky politics, um, but don't cede mm -hmm. a massive topic of scripture and part of what it means to be human because you're afraid of, and but and I get it. I mean, I had a friend who lived in D.C. and said, I'd love to be interested in this stuff. But the moment that I mention that I have an interest here, I immediately get labeled as a ultra progressive socialist, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I hear that. And I don't know how to help each of you work through that in your own context other than to say um, it doesn't need to be that way. Uh, so, yeah. Does that make sense, Cameron? I didn't really answer your it question. Does. And so many thoughts. Well, yeah, and I have I have a lot of questions for you. One, let me let me make a comment here real quickly, and then I do have a follow up question that I think will take us into some interesting territory. But one of so the notion that everything human beings touch is bad, any modification that we make is bad, strikes me as as interesting as well because a lot of people in well, I'm I hate using general designations like that a lot of people i've read articles and i've seen some murmurings that kind of are look at the human human beings as some will actually go so far as to call you know the human race a virus mm -hmm. and look at it as a virus on a planet now this is an extreme line of thinking so i'm just just for the sake of clarity bringing to the front the forefront an extreme version of this thought here but what is so odd about that is look if you are say a naturalist and if you're you subscribe to scientific naturalism then human beings are a natural part of the world oh yeah there's a conflict there absolutely i mean and what we do our technology all the modifications that we make some of some of them may be harmful to the planet some of them may be wasteful that's fine but you're part of nature. To so so to look at human beings as somehow parasitic and and like a like a virus is pretty naive and actually pretty silly. But it also is a backhanded compliment. So Christians say human beings are made in the image of God. So human beings are special. We're not like lions and tigers and bears. We have capacities that are that really that elevate us above beasts we really do and so we would say yeah human beings are special because they're made in the image of god but then there's another school of thought that would say no human beings aren't special they're so pernicious so bad they need to vanish utterly from the planet because they're so destructive but that's this that's still making human beings unbelievably special yeah 
we're so special that we have the capacity to destroy everything. Therefore, we need to be eradicated. So those are actually that that's a that's a backhanded way of kind of affirming the specialness of human beings once again. So I think we we keep coming back to we're confronted with human ingenuity and increasingly those outside the church have a hard time knowing what to do with it. Yeah, so a couple of thoughts there, and I recognize we're not addressing the earlier questions that you asked, but we'll get there. Um, so there, there is a difference in what humans can do. Let's be clear about that. One of the things that humans can do is that they can make things that aren't usable for anything else or anybody else. And that's something that animals can't do. So the squirrel eats the nut, the seeds get redistributed, trees grow, the squirrel dies, the squirrel decomposes, and like the whole cycle just goes on and on and on. Humans uniquely can throw a styrofoam cup in the ditch of the road that will last forever. Uh, and so we have the capacity to put things together into pieces that are inorganic um, and to build structures and to do things that really do uh, not fit in with kind of what we would consider to be quote, a natural organic order. So I think that's some of where that comes from. But like you said, that's a backhanded compliment to say, um, do we have the wherewithal to use our capacities correctly? And that whole, and that correctly is the other difficult part of that. Not only how does humanity fit into it, but what is the right oughtness for the way that the world ought to be naturalistically? And this is where in conservation, it gets difficult to say, okay, what condition should Yellowstone be in? Should Yellowstone stay in the state that it was in 1972 or in 1872? Or who gets to pick the time of what's natural for Yellowstone? Do we need to restore right. it till it's under a glacier? <laughs> or, you know, what yep. what's the baseline here? And so part of the difficulty is, is we're operating without baselines on some of these things um, in a way that if we're trying to force anyway, yeah, you get you get the point there that the the oddness. Yeah. And how humanity is is fitted within it is, yeah, pretty fascinating. Now, here's the, let me throw this out there also. If you're listening to this as a Christian who is unsure, you do not need to believe in um, man-made global warming due to uh, pick your greenhouse gas of choice. Let's just set that all aside mm-hmm. for a second. And I'm not saying that it's not that I think it's not important. I'm just saying let's say you're in a category where you're like, oh, pff, whatever with all of that. Okay, I bet you still don't think it's a good idea to go break all of your mercury thermometers in the river or throw all your trash out along the side of the road or look at industrial sludge upstream from um, food production places. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff that fits into this idea of being a good steward other than what may or may not be happening with the CO2 concentration where you live right now. So I think that's the other danger is that if we step back from a holistic version of this, then we get into just playing in the categories that the media is spazzing out about. Um, and we forget everything else that's going on. And the reason that that leads to a lot of apathy is because look, if you look at all, say the plastic in the ocean, the 10 largest and most polluting rivers in the world, none of them are in the Western hemisphere. So if you don't want to use a plastic straw, that's fine, but no plastic straws in the U S end up in the ocean. Like we have a system for that. And so even if we changed all of our behavior in a certain category, if we're looking at the global impact, um, yeah, you can buy a metal straw if you want. And that's great. But don't think you're then righteous because you're solving a problem because the cause and effect where you live isn't even applicable to what's causing the problem in somewhere else in the earth. So I think some of it is just a thoughtfulness about, okay, what 
I guess I struggle with so many of the solutions that are pitched are so simple and have so little impact on, um, and it's the other thing, like buying, uh, <laughs> well, I won't get into that, but like some of the fair trade stuff and whatnot, when you look at the actual, mm -hmm. yeah. I feel great because I buy fair trade coffee and you're like, okay, what does that even mean? And when you look at some of how that all works out, is that even, um, yeah. So I, I don't know. It, it seems like we're being sold solutions to fixes that don't need to be made in the name of, so it's almost like a, <laughs> a profiteering off of the anxiety in a way that isn't. So yeah, sorry, maybe I sound cynical there, but I think we can just do better than that as Christians. Yeah, agreed. And to go back to, so I think here's a really important question, Nathan. So political distrust is is one thing, right? This issue has been over-politicized. We've talked a good deal about that. So there's a lot of suspicion surrounding it. But I think actually the reasons for Christian resistance to this go deeper than that. I think that might describe some of the superficial reasons. But I think a lot of Christians, a lot of us believers, and I'm, I'm putting myself in this category, of course, as well, really have a pretty thinned out eschatology. And I think that's really at the root of so much of the poor response, you might say, to the creation mandate. And if I could just maybe tell you how I want you oh, to yeah, frame this please. answer, Nathan. Well, you have a certain story that you shared with me yesterday that I think is actually quite powerful that involved a, f a friend of yours when rubble was being cleared in a certain the way. Oh, yeah, it, yeah, basically, yeah. it's waste disposal in the midst <laughs> yeah. of rubble. It's I find that very powerful and very helpful. So do yeah. work that in there, Yeah, Nathan. okay. So I, I haven't decided what I think about this. Sorry, Daniel. Didn't ask for permission on this one. Um, so, yeah, last winter, our garage burned down. Very sad. I was at a funeral and came home to a bunch of fire trucks in our – it was bad. And it's, like, not like a little fire. It was, like, garage, woodshed, chicken house, all of my fun things burned up. Um so we had uh, like commercial dumpsters being dropped off. We had a tractor with a loader, a whole bunch of guys. I mean, it's just the whole thing. It, just take my word for it. It was a disaster. It was a huge mess. We had to shovel it all up and get rid of it. And so we're scooping stuff stuff up off the ground and dumping it into dumpsters. And so it's people running around everywhere. And my wife brought out water in some paper cups. Um, and so my friend Daniel took a drink of water out of a paper cup. And then he threw it on the ground where the tractor was about to come by and scoop it up and dump it into the dumpster, which was going to go then to the, um, and his son looked over at me and gave me this funny look in his face as if like, watch this. And then sure enough, Daniel turned around and he went over and picked up the cup. He's like, oh, I, I just can't do it. I just can't in good conscience throw this on the ground. Um, even though he was throwing out a spot where it was about to get scooped up to go into the same exact spot. But it was, I haven't quite fully processed that, but there was something in him that's saying, even though the outcome is the same, the action feels wrong to me because it makes me a type of person who doesn't respect something. So there's like a internal conflict about the, even though yeah. it had the same outworking, that was a sign of respect. And like, this isn't the type of person that I am that plays into this to a certain extent. And so I think, tell, tell me what you think is interesting about that story. Yep. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'll tell you why I like it. And I, why I think, what he did was very meaningful and powerful and that it, and, and some of the ethical undertones. So your friend, the actual ritual of proper waste disposal was important to him. Why was it important to him? The outcome might be the same, 
but the actual posture and the gestures that go along with it have an effect inwardly on you as a person. So it is important. First of all, proper waste disposal ought to be a habit, right? It's not just something you do to, to feel, you know, to look right, look good in front of other people. You do it only when they're looking and, you know, otherwise you just, you buy regular coffee and use whatever straw you want. But if this is actually something that you really believe in, the behavior is internalized and it defines your whole posture. So if you're going to do that, the actual ritual is important. One of the analogies that I, I made yesterday, Nathan, as we were talking about this was, I don't know if this is maybe too too sacred of an example to use, but let's say communion. So I'd recognize communion as, as a very symbolically loaded and important and grace-filled event. It's very important. But you could say, if somebody's just only focused on on the outcome, you could say, well, it doesn't really matter how we do communion. You know, everybody could just sort of rush to the table if they want. You know, words of instruction aren't really that important. Or you could have the little, you know, distributed wafers and, and you know, just sort of on the go. You know, what, what are those called? Those little communion, those little elements that are almost like airplane meals that show up on individual seats. It doesn't really matter how it's done, just so long as it's done. Or you might be of the persuasion, and I am, by the way, that no, this is this is a sacred ritual, and we need words of institution. There needs the 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 way you do it, your whole comportment, all of the gestures, the the words of repentance that precede, all of that is vital and important, and has to be there. So, I think that story also has a resonance because some people, I think, default. And this has a history. We don't have time to go into all of this. This actually has a history in some of the old versions of fundamentalism, actually. You can trace this line of thinking back to, and I'm not using fundamentalist in a pejorative sense, the way that the media often throw that term around. I'm using it in in terms of a religious sensibility and movement that kind of happened really in the 1920s that really comes to a kind of culmination, but it's a it's an ongoing sensibility. And I was, I'm drawing my thinking, if you're interested, from George Marsden's fundamentalism in American culture. But basically, without getting into all the, the technical details, the thinking often went that, well, this world is, is headed ultimately to a kind of cosmic dumpster. It's going to be destroyed. So the way we treat the planet doesn't really matter that much. What you really should be focusing on as a Christian is evangelism and reaching the lost. And don't get distracted with, you know, proper waste disposal and all that. It's sure, I mean, fine if you want to recycle and all that, but really take creation care doesn't, it, it's not, it's not something that ought to be prioritized. I think that's, again, I don't think a lot of people articulate it like that and, and state it so plainly, but I think that's a default mindset for a lot of people. And your friend, Daniel, his whole, what he was doing there is the opposite kind of mindset. It makes me think of N.T. Wright's little soundbite on this. The Lord is returning, plant a tree. Yeah, that, that gets him in some interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But it, but it, it challenges kind of that notion that there is a disconnect between the spiritual and the physical, which I think it does. is where Christians actually have something very helpful and valuable to say in all of this. Um, and so that 
I think that is the once we get over the like sociological and political reasons for shying away from it, when we lean back into it, um, that's where this actually gets interesting to say, actually, we are people who have a very both mentality when it comes to the interaction of what it means to be human and the goodness of the physical earth and creation. The As you're talking about the, the communion and the way that you do something, I think there are people who would expect me to be reading this quote to you, but at the end of, um, well, it's a series, well, Wendell Berry's essay, The Gift of Good Land, see if this fits with what you were saying. Mm-hmm. He said, we depend on other creatures and survive by their deaths. To live, we must daily break the body and shed the blood of creation. When we do this knowingly, lovingly, skillfully, reverently, it is a sacrament. When we do it ignorantly, greedily, clumsily, destructively, it's a desecration. In such desecration, we condemn ourselves to spiritual and moral loneliness and others to want. And I've always wrestled with that passage. I think it's right and beautiful in a way, but of whether or not you can do the same thing, but the way that you do it makes it right or wrong. And there's a... um. Oh, um, uh, what's the guy who did the NPR segment on um, the prayer? Uh, oh, yes, Gene Garrison Garrison Keeler. Yeah, he has a, a story on hog killing. How he went to visit, I think, like his uncle's farm or something, and they were butchering hogs. And then he went down and was chasing the hogs around and like harassing them. And all the guys came down and got like I don't know if they got spankings or what, but that he got severely punished for chasing mm. the hogs that were about to be slaughtered by these guys. And he recognized there was this whole yep. respect of the animal thing going on that he was too little to understand where he thought throwing rocks at the pigs was funny because they're about to get killed anyway. And these mm-hmm. guys had a whole different framework of life. And so I think that actually is a good illustration of some sort of understanding of something bigger and more special happening. So it isn't just a, a complete use of creation there's a respect for it while using it that makes it an item of thanksgiving and worship and praise um, that's good for everybody. So, yeah, I don't know. Just those kind of ideas were floating in my mind while you were saying that. Yeah, I mean, and also, I mean, the world is shared space, too. And part of loving your neighbor is doing your part to try to make this world a more hospitable place, right? And I mean, just as nobody would, this is a simplistic example, but I think sim- simplicity can sometimes give us clarity. You know, your house, your place of dwelling that you live in is not going to last forever. So why the heck, what, what are you doing painting the walls and decorating? As long as it gives you shelter and keeps the rain off your head, it's fine. It's a, it's, it's a you know, helpful structure. It protects you. No, that's not how human beings operate. You want to make it homey. You want to you put up pictures of your family and you fill it with art that you find, you know, that that helps make you feel at home and and gives it a sense of, you know, elegance and, you know, calms you down. So there's something very fitting about human beings not just, you know, farming the land and all of that, but also planting flowers and beautiful trees. The person who owned the house before me planted a Japanese maple in our front yard. It is abs- it's breathtakingly gorgeous for precisely about three weeks out of the <laughs> entire calendar year. I mean, this is the kind of, for, for three weeks, it could be in a Japanese garden. Other than that, it's a pretty useless 
you know, tree and it, and it routinely grows into the road and I have to keep cutting it back. And every time I cut the grass, it manages to scratch me. But there's something very neat about the fact that, that was planted there. And it's, you know, it serves a beautiful aesthetic function and it's, it's wonderful that it's there. So I think part of this is also just getting realistic about how human beings tick and how we live and recognizing that, okay, just push forward a little bit and you can see that the creation mandate is actually very, not only is it totally theologically defensible, but it's it's so common sense as well to try to take care of, and of your land and cultivate the world. It's a, it's a gesture of hospitality. It's a way of loving your neighbor. But I think sometimes this pushes against us as Americans because we tend to Again, we we tend to be pretty individualistic in our thinking, especially when it comes to our possessions and our consumer habits. Yeah, so a disposable the, the notion a that, disposable yeah. economy and disposable materialism, I think, then does bleed over into our subconscious thinking on the goodness of other physical things. In this case, yep. the earth. I want to say something. You were, you mentioned eschatology. Well, actually, two things. So if we if we go back and kind of use like an Oz Guinness definition of culture of a way of life together, all ways of life are lived in a place. Um, and that is the biblical story is very much one of place. And so caring for it and thinking strategically long-term about it. Uh, and I have a lot of good stories of like you of people who I think who have done that well and I benefit from now. But the other side of that is you made that eschatological reference earlier. And, and the, you know, so a lot of people, when you hear the NT write, uh, Jesus is coming, plant a tree thing, they would say, oh no, the whole earth is going to be destroyed and burned up. You know, you have the passages that, lean in that direction. And others would say, nah, that's not quite the right interpretation of what's going on there in the judgment context and the renewal of the new heavens, the new earth, and all of that. But I just want to, sometimes it's helpful to take something and say, okay, let's take it at its face value. Let's say, for example, that you really do believe that the entire earth is going to be destroyed and dissolved and everything starts from scratch and there's no continuity between. Uh, and so you might want to think through some stuff on the physical resurrection and, and that kind of thing there. But let's say, let's yeah, say that right. is your perspective. Let's just go with that. Um, I think that's still a pretty popular idea and uniquely in America for whatever it's worth, um, that the whole thing will be destroyed. So use it however. Uh, this, this is my grandfather who helpfully pointed this out to me of saying, okay, even if that was true, nobody says, um, now these are my examples, just to get the idea out, like my kid's going to die someday, so I'll stop feeding them now. Or um, my body heals itself, so why don't I cut myself? It's it's not you. That's not your decision to make. That's not your choice. If if I thought that the Lord was returning tomorrow and the whole earth was being dissolved, I still wouldn't go throw all of my trash in my backyard today, just because it's not mine to do that with. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and so it's a sign of my responsibility in light of whose it is that I behave now. The future. So if you're doing stuff based off of the, just the future you're falling exactly into the climate paranoia and anxiety to say, we're going to base our present day activities and actions mm. based off of our fear of the future or the future that we don't think exists for this thing. And so I think it's a more healthy Christian perspective to say, not that it doesn't matter, but that that's secondary. The first question is, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing with what's entrusted to me? What has the Lord entrusted to me and how am I supposed to use it? Okay, figure that out. And then we'll decide what the Lord wants to do with all of that in the future. And by the way, I think if there is a good God who created the heavens and the earth and is responsible for the existence of each one of us, he is not surprised by the population of the earth right now. 
um, <laughs> and has given us what we need. We know for a fact yeah. since 1965 that the Earth has produced more food than is necessary to feed everyone on the planet. It, th there isn't a shortage in, and, and we haven't even begun. I mean, we're not even close to tapping the agricultural potential of the United States of America if we needed. There's so much unused land for stuff that, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, we could grow so much more food than could possibly be eaten. It's, it's, it's wild. Um, and so the Lord has provided. That's not the issue. The issue is, are we being responsible with what's been given to us? And so for me, that's where I think the, the Christian response to some of this plays back into of what do I do with what's been given to me? And my contention is, is that if there is a good God who's in charge of all of this, that the most God-honoring way uses the resources and the way that God intended humans to do it does turn out not only to be economically and environmentally efficient, but it also turns out to be pleasurable in the formation of community and the way that we were meant to live together. And so for me, I, I see this proper stewardship. I see harmony in relationships. I see um, resource efficiency as primary, and then the environmental benefit on the other end of that is good, but it's the byproduct. It's not the goal. And so just to put my cards on the table mm -hmm. here, I think there's a far greater threat that our lives will be massively disrupted by government overreaction to simplistic solutions than there is right now to us destroying it by uh, using plastic straws. I don't know. Um, so, and I'm not saying you can't have, don't use plastic straws if you don't want to, just don't think you're saving the planet doing it. And that the larger disruptions will largely come from humanity's overreaction to simplistic things. Um, and, and perhaps we're seeing that right now in the gas prices, right? No more fossil fuels, we heard in 2019. Mm, sure. uh, well, okay. Uh, yeah. How's that working out? So these things all have to be taken together. But I just wanted to throw that out there. Of even, if you're, even if you have an eschatological framework of the end times in which everything is destroyed, that still doesn't give you the right to damage that which God created and said is good now. The end. <laughs> yeah, be, yes. And I think if there's one parting note, it we could both in unison say, because it is... God's world, not our world. We've been entrusted with the stewardship of this world. And so if we were to in any way act irresponsibly, that would be a violation of God's authority. And so we want to honor that and we want to be responsible stewards of God's creation. And part of that involves care. Part of that involves also just, you know, laboring to make this world a more hospitable place for all of us, and it does involve some of those words that make some of us roll our eyes, like mindfulness and creation care. These are, but and the creation mandate, which is also, again, just to say it again, go back and read Genesis, which is so basic to Christianity. We just have to push through some of the barriers, most of them cultural, that have been created uniquely, I think, in the United States. So we hope that we've been able to do some do, do some work there in that regard on this on these podcasts at least to get us thinking along those lines i think i can just sense these are long podcasts <laughs> these ones and nathan oh i've i've got more if we could i've got a lot more but oh yeah so i sense <laughs> i sense we'll come back to this one because there's there's a lot more that could be said and i think that the two of us both have a lot to say on we this, didn't even answer the questions we asked ourselves management. so 
Precisely. There's so much. And, and part of this is then just join me in putting major pressure on Nathan to write a book on the subject as well. So you yeah, can, you yeah, you can write in, harass him on that, on that topic. And yeah, there, there's a sort of growing chorus. So let's make that happen. But in the meantime, you'll have to do with these breadcrumbs. So thank you so much for listening to them. You have been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.